Welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm your host, Ross Chevalier. This episode is brought to you by a common spring question. Hey, birds are giving birth. Stuff's coming back from the south. People want to take photos with super long lenses. So we'll look at that. You can help us grow our audience by telling your friends and peers about this podcast, by posting about it on social media, and by writing us a positive review on iTunes. I really appreciate that you take the time to listen, and thank you very much for your support. Welcome to episode 93. In this episode, let's talk about long telephoto lenses. Want to look like a real pro? Get a really big, really long lens. Also, get yourself some Tylenol because you're going to have serious back and shoulder pain as well as the potential for some really expensive blurred images. Okay, okay, it's not really that bad, but using long telephoto lenses effectively has things to consider up front. I've phrased these in the form of a question because I like Jeopardy, but they're questions that you might even be asking of yourself and of your peers. Number one, I'm strong, but do I have endurance? That's an important question because wielding a long telephoto lens, and let's define that as anything 300 mils or longer as measured against that dubious standard of full frame equivalence, means that we're holding up some weight. Certainly, if you're shooting a 300 mil equivalent on a micro four thirds sensor, that's going to weigh a lot less than doing so on a big pro body like a Nikon D5, but it's still likely to be more weight than you think it is. Strength lets us get the lens on target, but endurance helps us keep it on target and for an extended period of time. I see folks in camera stores pick up a long lens on a demo camera, bring it to their eye, maybe snap off a shot or two, and then put it back down. They love the reach. They love the capability that this big lens brings, but they're really not being fair to themselves because they're not checking their endurance. To check your endurance, put the lens on a small target and count off how long you can hold it before it starts to move on you or where you start to feel strain or may even start to shake a little bit. That's your endurance threshold. It's what it is. And ideally, you want to be getting your shots made before you get even halfway to your endurance threshold. Doesn't mean you're weak, doesn't mean that you're incapable, it's just, what is so? And just like repeating sets at the gym, your endurance is going to decline over the course of a shooting day, which could make for the need for muscle relaxants or those pain pills I talked about when you get home. Lots of lenses claim to be light, light relative to what? It only matters if they're usable in your use cases. Every other case is predominantly irrelevant. Next question to think about is how you're going to hold the lens. How will I hold this? Do you ever notice that you shake? I shake. And for me, my shakiness varies from day to day. What I do know is that the times that I need to be the most stable are invariably the times that I'm not. And that means we all need to figure out how we're going to hold on to a lens camera combination over an extended shooting period. We can't depend on our endurance or our strength to 
take us through. I've seen lots of folks try to handhold one of those 150 to 600 mil zooms, and they've come away with a very small success count, simply because the lens is just too heavy and awkward to shoot handheld. This is where a top-end carbon fiber monopod with a proper monopod head becomes a minimum requirement. You ever see those pro sports photographers on the side of the field with all the big glass? Monopods are the norm. They're not the exception. And those folks don't cheap out on some lightweight aluminum piece of crap that's going to cave like an umbrella in a gale. A good monopod's a necessity, but a low-grade one isn't going to help you, and it is going to increase your frustration level. Sometimes we'll have the opportunity to work in a blind or a location where we're not moving around too much, and we're going to have to possibly wait a long time to get the shot that we want. Maybe we're set up on a nest and we're waiting for, to see the adults feeding the children. That's when even a monopod isn't going to be enough, and we're going to need a solid but lightweight tripod using a proper gimbal head so we can tilt and pan that massive combination of lens and tripod easily. Guess what? A good tripod-like set will last you decades. A cheap one will help you develop a new creative vocabulary. A decent gimbal head is going to let you balance that entire assembly and will provide you with smooth, non-binding movements, whereas a cheap gimbal head will make you insane. A good gimbal costs a good chunk of money, but that good one will last you for a very long time and is less likely to be cast into a nearby lake in a fit of anger. Next question to ask yourself is, how am I going to carry this kit? We have to get our kit to where we're going to be shooting. Now, in the perfect world, we'll just drive up, open the door, and set up. I don't know about what your experience is, but in my experience, that ideal world is pretty rare. So we need to be able to we need to be prepared to haul our kit overland. While we're doing that, where does it go? We're going to accept that carrying big glass is going to be awkward, and that's really going to drive you to a backpack. Trust me on this. You could put it on a sling. And that works well if you want to slowly dislocate your collarbone. Or you could put it on a neck strap if you like the idea of developing an unnatural spinal curve. You could put it on one of those waist belt holster things if you're tired of your hips and knees and don't care if they degrade into slush. Really, none of these options are going to work practically. And contrary to some videos, carrying the thing over your shoulder while it's mounted to a tripod that's just begging for something to let go and have the whole thing come crashing to the ground and shattering into pieces. Yes, it looks cool. No, it's not smart. Moreover, this gets really painful because that tripod is bouncing up and down on your shoulder. And if you're moving across uneven ground or ground that isn't the least bit slippery, it's really, really uncomfortable. We now need to ask is how we're going to mount the lens to that monopod or tripod. So we've thought about getting there. Now let's think about how we're going to set up. Not all cameras are built with heavy duty metal chassis. Many cameras today use just high performance polymers. And some of the really inexpensive ones even have plastic lens mounts. If the lens weighs more than the camera body, the lens should have a tripod collar on it. If it doesn't, that's a design flaw. 
A tripod collar is there for a reason, and it is screaming at you to mount the lens to the tripod or monopod or whatever you're using to support the camera, but not to mount the camera. The reason for this should be obvious. That big, long lens is placing a lot of torsional force on the camera body. And if that very heavy lens is pulling hard on a much lighter body, it's an easy way to pull that mount right out of alignment, or as I have seen happen on some of the more inexpensive all-plastic bodies, pull the camera lens mount right off the body. It's horrible. So please don't be lazy. Use the tripod collar on the lens. If the tripod collar is optional for the lens that you're going to use, buy it. Order it right away. It exists for a good reason. And give the manufacturer hell for not including it in the box because they're just cheaping out and trying to screw you over. My next question to ask is, okay, how do I get that lens camera combination onto the tripod or monopod head? Well, whatever we're using for stability and weight handling, we do want to be able to get the camera lens kit onto it and off of it with minimal frustration and risk of dropping. We typically want to do this relatively quickly, but not so fast that we're going to create a hazard for our gear. A locking quick mount system is very common on a tripod and even on some monopods these days. So if you've got one, you could always consider just getting an additional plate and mount it to the lens foot. If you do that, use some blue Loctite to make sure that it will not loosen off on its own. They tend to do that. If you're using a gimbal head, and for really long glass, you probably should be, being able to balance that camera lens combination is really important. So my recommendation is, is instead of using a quick mount plate, use a long mounting plate on the lens foot. I already know that the lens foot is going to be too short. Trust me on this. Most decent gimbals out there are going to use an Arca Swiss style dovetail plate. They're great because when mounted, the whole thing is really smooth. The lock is positive. And if you undo the lock, you can slide the entire thing back and forth so you can achieve balance. This is really important on a gimbal. Why shoot a gimbal if your kit's unbalanced? This is where these small mounting plates, like these QR plates, just aren't going to do the job. They're mostly useless when you're shooting a gimbal. Odds are pretty good that you're going to have to buy this lens foot plate separately. So my recommendation is go longer than you think you need. I typically suggest get a plate that's twice as long as the foot itself. I'm very picky about the maker of the plate. I use really right stuff plates exclusively because they're really well made and they're not made of cheap white metal that will tear over time. I've also found that the plates made in Canada by Jobu are also excellent and they're pretty inexpensive. Now, in fairness, I've also seen plates made offshore that are very cost effective, but they're much lower in quality. And I've actually seen them snap. The metal is that cheap. That's a disaster that you can consciously avoid. When we look at long telephoto lenses, we should be asking the question of how I choose a focal length appropriate to my needs. The point of using long glass 
period is to fill the frame as much as possible and maximize the resolution of the sensor that we're using. I've read a lot of BS about how cropping in on a full frame delivers much better images than images right off the sensor on a crop sensor camera. I don't get it. Those that claim this clearly have no concept of basic arithmetic. You want as many photo sites holding part of the subject as possible. You want to avoid cropping in as much as you can. And because lenses go from pricey to expensive to cuckoo crazy, as the native focal length increases, you may find that shooting a smaller sensor actually delivers you a better quality final image at a lower cost. Think about this. You could choose a micro four third sensor with 20 megapixels of resolution and a native 400 millimeter lens, or I could choose a full frame 45 megapixel sensor where I would need to spend the money on an 800 millimeter lens just to get the same angle of view. And to get the kind of lens aperture in terms of maximum light gathering, I'd be spending a lot of money. Yeah, I'd have better resolution with the full frame because I have a bigger sensor with possibly more pixels. But I'd also be spending six times as much and carrying ten times the weight. In the end, it's up to you. It's your choice. But think about this. It's not uncommon for pros to carry bodies with different sensor sizes to help address the field of view challenges brought by the demand to shoot with long lenses. Let's say that your normal camera is a full frame and you buy a lens for it, a full frame capable 150 to 600 mil zoom. It's pretty popular. Now, what if I need more reach? Well, I could buy a longer lens, but that will cost me tens of thousands of dollars. Or I could buy a second body, in this case, a crop sensor body. Let's suppose that I choose a crop sensor that has a 1.5 times crop factor, and that gives me an effective focal length on that lens I already own, that 150 to 600, of 225 mil to 900 millimeters. This gives me basically 1.5 times the effective focal length as if I had mounted that lens on my full-frame sensored camera. This means by mounting that same lens on a crop sensor body, I crop in less and I lose less data. You have to do the math for your own use cases and decide accordingly. But you might find it's actually less expensive to buy a second body with a slightly smaller sensor than to spend the money on an extra 200 millimeters of focal length for the sensor that you use most of the time. Just remember in the quest for focal length, not to cheat yourself of lens speed. Even on a tripod, you still need a high shutter speed to get sharp images. And if the maximum aperture is too small, you're going to be jacking your ISO up into the noise region very quickly. And that's going to happen faster on a smaller sensor, meaning you're going to get more noise faster on the smaller sensor. As we've learned, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Another question I'm going to ask about telephoto lenses, particularly long ones, is what about the shutter speed? Well, we've all heard the pretty standard recommendation of putting one over the maximum focal length of your lens to determine the minimum shutter speed for handholding. As lens size and weight goes up, this so-called rule sails into the gutter. 
because by the time you're out at 600 millimeter full frame effective, your minimum safe hand holding shutter speed is a whole lot closer to one fifteen hundredth of a second than the one six hundredth of a second that we think it might be. This has everything to do with dimensional weight of this new combination. Don't bet your house and car on image stabilization either. Those manufacturer claims of four stops and even higher are only achievable in the perfect world, and we don't live there. It's in the fine print. So I recommend you take whatever the manufacturer says the camera lens combination is capable of and divide it by two. And that's your plan for maximum stabilization return. If you're having a good day. If you're not having a good day, you've had too much coffee, turn the stabilization on and then pretend it doesn't exist and behave accordingly in terms of choosing your shutter speeds. There is an ongoing question about whether to use stabilization when everything is mounted on a tripod. And the answer is, as it often is, it depends. Some camera lens documentation is very specific about whether to turn stabilization off or leave it on. But most documentation is so lousy it never brings this up at all. So for safety, turn it off and act accordingly. By the way, this is also a good time to invoke that one over the focal length rule, but now apply it to when you're on a tripod. You might be able to get a shot with your 600 mil at 1 60th of a second if you're mounted on a solid tripod, but it's really only going to work out if there's no wind, no atmospheric whirling, and your subject is a brick lying on stable ground. The more stuff weighs, the more inertia it has, and if there is anything causing it to move, like a breeze, it's going to tend to keep moving. These very, very fine angles of view are going to exacerbate any camera movement. So, if you've got to shoot, go for a faster shutter speed. I have seen pros shooting birds at dawn liftoff, sandbag their tripods completely, and weigh down that entire setup with their big 600mm lenses, and they still won't go lower than 1 250th of a second as a minimum shutter speed. They've been there. They've found out that you just don't have as much range as you think you do. I've made shots myself with a 500 f4 using a two times teleconverter on a crop sensor body, and this has given me an effective focal length of 1600 millimeters equivalent. Everything was mounted to a rock solid, really right stuff tripod and their gimbal head. That made my effective maximum lens opening f8, and I wanted to close down a couple of stops for something other than my razor thin depth of field that I would expect at 1600 millimeters. One one thousandth of a second even on the tripod, was too slow. There was still enough micro-shake happening to make the images unusable, in my opinion. I had to raise my ISO to 1600, and it was a bright, sunny day in order to get my shutter speed up to a two-thousandth of a second at f16 and keep my ISO down at 100 where I wanted it for the best color and contrast. Don't kid yourself about how stable your tripod is and about how low your shutter speed can go when you're shooting very long glass. As we wrap up this episode, I don't want you to be discouraged, because long glass can make the difference between getting the shot and not getting it at all. 
I've been incredibly fortunate to make some really pleasing images with very long lenses, even when I'm pushing my own boundaries. But I've learned the hard way that it takes practice, both handheld and when locked down to shoot long lenses, consistently and effectively. In preparation for this podcast, I reviewed a number of images that went well, and a larger number that didn't. It's a process, just like any other photographic exercise, but give it a shot. I wish you great success, and hopefully these tips are going to help you improve your success ratio. Do you have an idea for an article or a tutorial? Do you have a photo or video question that's not related to this article? Send me an email directly at ross at thephotovideoguy.ca or post in the comments on the website. If you're in Canada, please consider shopping with Henry's in your local store or at www.henrys.com. If you're in the United States and you shop with BNH Photo Video, please consider doing so using the link on thephotovideoguy.ca as this helps support my efforts and has no negative impact whatsoever on your shopping experience. If you find this podcast or the articles or the videos of value, please consider clicking the donation tab in the sidebar of the website and buy me a coffee. Your donation goes to help me keep things going. Don't forget to email your questions on any photo or video topic. I'll try to respond within a day. I'm Ross Chevalier. Thanks for reading, watching, and listening. And until next time, peace.